Well, good morning, everybody. I have never, ever, this is the first time for me, I've never preached in a giant garden before. So I am excited to do that today. As you can tell, if any of you are visiting, our church doesn't normally look like this. We happened to have VBS this last week, and so the giant dragonflies are not a staple here at First Baptist Church, but we are so thankful and happy to have them. The people, the people here really did a fantastic job, didn't they? I mean, this is amazing. And, uh, I mean, every year it's so good, but this is just incredible, just the amount of work that people put into VBS here. And the gospel was presented clearly, and it's just fantastic week. I really wish I could have been here, but I was under the weather this last week. However, uh, I, I just heard that it was a fantastic, fantastic time. So please do come back tonight for the church business meeting. That's very important. Also, um, it was mentioned that we're going to have a concert here. I also just want to do a really quick um, push or a plug for the whole street fair thing uh, for signing up in the, in the foyer area because we do need people to man the booth. If you are a lazy person and the best act of service you can think of is just sitting around and doing very little, then signing up for the street fair is perfect for you. It's perfect because we're not really asking a lot. We're asking for you to just sit there. The kids are going to be, there are going to be a couple of games there for kids and for people in the community coming by can, can participate in. Just, uh, we're going to have little flyers and other things set up. Just, just go to man the booth and have a good time. It's a, it's a good opportunity for us to get out into the community and let people know that we're here and invite them to come. And so please, if you, if you can, just block out a couple hours of your week here in the next week or two, and, and it would just be a tremendous blessing for you and for other people. And like I said, it's a win-win because it's very little work on your part. You just sit there. So um, also, I appreciate your prayers this week. Um, last week, you may have noticed this morning the worship was a little bit different, and that's because uh, today is Youth Sunday for the church. It was the youth praise band that was playing and doing all of the music. And this morning, Sean was originally scheduled to preach. Well, he had to preach a week early, for those of you who were here last week, because, uh, because unfortunately I didn't have a voice last week. And so I've had this nasty bug that's been going around. But I've heard that Sean did a fantastic job. Don't tell him this. I listened to the sermon online, and I can tell you he did a fantastic job. And I know that if you were here, you were blessed. And if you weren't, you should go back and listen to the audio because um, it was just a fantastic message that he preached last week. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Today we finish up the first chapter. When we began this study, I mentioned that 2 Thessalonians is a brief but powerful letter. It's a small letter, but it packs a punch. Chapter 1 is all about one thing, though, comfort. If we could summarize the whole chapter, chapter 1, with one word, it would be comfort. The Thessalonians were suffering intense persecution, and yet Paul says that he and the other apostles were proud of them. In fact, he goes on to say that they consider the Thessalonians to be a brag-worthy church because he boasts about them to all the other churches in the area because they were growing in faith, love, and fortitude. And all of that came together in verse 4, where he says, Therefore, We ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for the steadfastness of faith in all your persecutions and in all of the afflictions that you are enduring. So flowing out of that, he then goes on to encourage them that one day God will make all things right in the end. You're being afflicted now, you're being hurt, 
You're being pushed down, you're being beaten, crushed, but not destroyed. Take heart, because one day, Christ will return. And when he does, he's going to make everything right. That's chapter 1 so far. He's going to bring glory to the suffering and affliction for the afflictor. So it's comfort, comfort, and more comfort. So let's keep that in mind as we look at verses 11 and 12 today. Because Paul really wants to wrap his arms around them and give them a tight squeeze here before moving on to the rest of the chapter, or the rest of the letter. The rest of the letter contains more of a a mixture. It's not just all comfort. This first chapter, all comfort. But moving on into chapter 2, it's more of a mixture between comfort and correction. So before moving on to that, he really wants to finish these things, or finish this chapter strong, with candid insight into his prayers. He wants them to know how he's praying for them. So let's look at that together here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was in school, they would tell us that great preaching is just as much caught as it is taught. They would tell us that repeatedly. They would say, if you want to be a better preacher, you need to listen to good preachers. You need to read good sermons. You need to pray that God would surround you with godly men. And the same can be said for prayer. Because prayer is the same way. It is just as much caught as it is taught. Now, there is certainly a time and a place for teaching on prayer. After all, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. But it is just as important to listen to, study, and surround yourself with compelling prayers. And what better way to do that, this morning or any time, than to examine the prayers of Scripture? Because just think about it. If Scripture is God-breathed, and if, as we looked at last month, if it's true, as we saw in second, or last year even in Second Peter, that if men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, if it's true that, that these are God's words here on these pages in this book, then what does that tell us about the prayers that are found in this book? It tells us that those prayers are Holy Spirit-inspired prayers. In other words, these are the best prayers that we have. Think of the person that you know personally who is the best prayer you've ever heard. We've all prayed with people out loud and in public and one-on-one. Who is the best prayer you've ever prayed with? Think about that person. That person's prayers pale in comparison to the prayers we find here in Scripture, unless they're praying Scripture, because these prayers are Holy Spirit-inspired prayers. So this morning's message is here to both comfort and instruct us on how to pray through the Apostles' example. Paul pulls back the curtain, and he gives us more than a glimpse into his prayer life. He tells us how often he prays, what his prayers look like, and what motivates him to keep on praying. So the title of this morning's message is A Good Way to Pray. A Good Way to Pray. Now, is this the only way to pray? No, of course not. But it is one of the many Holy Spirit-inspired examples that we have here in Scripture. So if you want to pray the way that God wants you to pray, if you want to communicate with God the way that He wants you to communicate with Him, then paying attention... So the prayers of Scripture is an excellent place to start. It's an excellent place to begin. So what can we catch from the Apostles' model presented here in these two verses to help us pray? Well, first of all, we see Paul's example. It shows us when to pray. When to pray. Look at the beginning of verse 11. He says, To this end, we always pray for you. We always pray for you. And that is a profound little statement. Notice he says, To this end. To this end. Paul prays with a goal in mind. 
He prays with a goal in mind. These are not mindless prayers. He's not saying, okay, it's time to pray out of a dry sense of obligation. He's not saying, okay, um, how long has it been today? Or he's checking his watch. Uh, 15 minutes. Okay, I've got to spend 15 minutes today praying. And I spend at least two minutes praying over my food. And I've got another five minutes before bedtime. That's not, that's not how Paul approaches his prayer life here. And he's not wandering through his prayers either, just aimlessly rattling off whatever comes to mind. No, he's praying with a purpose. He has a goal in mind. He has his eye on the prize. He wants to see these persecuted Christians flourish in their afflictions. He wants them to grow into spiritual giants with a hardened and attested faith that's proven, proven true, that's undeniable and powerful. And so to this end, with this goal in mind, this purpose front and center, to this end, he says, we always pray for you. So who is the we here? In this passage, it's the apostles mentioned in verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, heavy hitters of the faith, big names in the early church. These are the guys that you want praying for you. But here's the astonishing part. Their prayers are not given just once or occasionally. But what does the text say? Always. Always. Can you imagine how comforting that would be for the Thessalonians? To know that the apostles were purposefully, intentionally, and constantly praying for you at all times. In all conditions. These saints were burdened to pray with an end game in mind. If I were a Thessalonian and I received this letter, I would be overwhelmed. According to Acts 17, Paul's stay in Thessalonica wasn't even that long before the Jews formed a mob and rushed him out of town. And yet, here he is, writing to them again from Corinth, of all places. A church that had its own problems. Pastor Sean mentioned that briefly last week in his message. But here, from Corinth, in the midst of a busy busy time for Paul, he, he takes time out to, to pause, pull over to the side and say, look, Timothy, Silas, and I, we love you, we're thinking about you, you weigh heavy on our hearts, and we want you to know that you are intentionally being lifted up in prayer, always. That had to comfort them immensely, immensely. But they weren't the only ones that Paul treated this way. This ministry of comfort and this praying at all times for the saints, it was a common thing for him. To the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 3, he said, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then in verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Speaking of praying and finding good prayers in Scripture to emulate and to incorporate into your own prayers, how about that one? Praying that you would know the will of God, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's a powerhouse prayer. To the Romans, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. To the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. To the Thessalonians, in the first letter, chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And even to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, day and night. This was a pattern in Paul's life. His prayers were continually filled with purposeful petitions for other believers. And that doesn't just happen by accident. Praying all the time doesn't just happen. It has to be intentional. 
It must be purposeful. It requires intentionality because church, prayer, and this is so important, prayer is not a spiritual gift. It's a spiritual discipline. Prayer is not a spiritual gift. It's a discipline. You're not going to find scriptural support for a spiritual ability or special gift of intercession. I'm sorry. I looked as much as I could this week. I just couldn't find it. Because the burden doesn't fall on a few extraordinary individuals. It falls on all of us. We are all instructed and commanded even to pray. Every single person in this room. 1 Timothy 2.1 First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Romans 12.12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Or simply 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Three words. Small verse, right? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. It's a command, folks. You see, we're all called, commanded, gifted, empowered, and expected to pray. When it comes to prayer, no one is special and no one is exempt. Because prayer is a discipline that requires constant attention. Becoming a man or a woman of continual, steadfast prayer, it takes determination. It requires sacrifice. It takes time, effort, and energy to develop a regular discipline of prayer in your life. But that is something that every Christian is called to do. Every believer. You know, a phrase that we like to pass around in the church world often is prayer life. And we will ask each other in the hallways, hey, how's your prayer life going? And there's nothing wrong with that. I use that phrase all the time. Nothing wrong with saying, hey, how's your prayer life? But what do we mean by that? I'm sure most of us are simply asking, how often do you pray? And how important is it to you right now? But by phrasing the question that way, how's your prayer life, we need to be careful that we never imply that the discipline of prayer is somehow detached from the rest of our life. Like it's its own thing. Let's never treat the command to pray as something to pick up or put down, something to attach or detach, something to do or to don't. Because if that's the way we see it, then we need to stop compartmentalizing our prayer life, and we need to make prayer our life. Paul's example in this text shows us when to pray. And the answer is clear. Constantly, persistently, always. The apostles were men of prayer, and they prayed for others all the time. And we, the lesser men, have been commanded all throughout the New Testament to do likewise. That's the first part of verse 11. When to pray, always. The rest of the verse shows us what to pray. What to pray. Look at what he says there. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. A couple observations. Notice that the prayer is not for the Thessalonians to do something, at least not from their own power. But it is God who is making everything happen here. It is God's power. It's all being done by him and his power, not theirs. So what exactly is it that the apostles want to see God do by his power in the Thessalonians? Well, grammatically here we have two petitions. They are marked by these two subjunctives, make you worthy and may fulfill. So we have two primary prayer requests. To summarize them, the first request is that God would make you excellent. God would make you excellent. That's what he means when he says that our God may make you worthy of his calling. This harkens back to what we've already seen in verse 5 when he wrote, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. 
for which you are also suffering. This idea of worthiness, by the way, this is not some flash in the pan, once mentioned, never mentioned again doctrine for Paul either. He told the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ in Philippians 1.27. He told the Colossians, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1, 9, and 10. He told the Ephesians, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Ephesians 4, 1. And previously to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, he said, we exhorted each, of, each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. So this prayer, that God would make you worthy of his calling, it's a common and repeated request that was very much a part of of Paul's ongoing continual prayer life. And the point of this prayer request is for each and every one of us to walk in excellence. That's the point. Let me ask you this. How high is the calling of God? Have you thought about that? Or maybe more importantly, what is the calling of God? What is this call that you have been commanded to walk worthy of? Let's look ahead a couple of paragraphs into chapter 2. This is what we'll be looking at in just a few weeks, starting in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a powerful passage. I can't wait till we get there. Not that this passage isn't powerful. This is a powerful passage. But that, that is a powerhouse passage. But like everything else that we have looked at so far this morning, this truth is not found standing in a corner by itself somewhere. We could literally exhaust ourselves going through not the one or two or three, but the dozens of passages out there that refer to God's calling, to the call of God. And we would notice one thing one consistency in them all, and that they all refer to just one thing, and that is God's salvation. Salvation. The call of God mentioned here in this text is the overwhelming, irresistible call that always results in salvation. Theologians refer to it as the effectual or saving call, as opposed to the general call, which is an open invitation to salvation. Jesus referenced the effectual call when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So this prayer that our God may make you worthy of his calling, it's all about living in a way that reflects the reality of your salvation. That's what it's about. Living in a way that reflects the reality of your salvation. It's a great prayer request because we all need it. And the request itself is comprehensive. It encompasses the character and the virtue of your Christian life. Look, you cannot decide to follow Jesus and make that journey on your own. It takes the Spirit's power, the Spirit's enablement, to walk in a manner worthy of your glorious salvation. That's why prayers like this one are so important. So important. They're essential even. And yet, how often does this prayer request make our list? I mean, think about that. When was the last time that you prayed for someone else's sanctification? When was the last time that you prayed for your sanctification? And I'm not talking about praying for somebody else in a way where you say, Lord... You know that this person over here, they have problems. And I just pray that they would get their act together. 
help them, Lord. But instead pray, Lord, you know this person struggles. And by your power, would you make them excellent? Make them worthy of the name of Christ. Or how about saying, Lord, prevent them from falling into sin. Remind them, Lord, of their calling and who they represent every day. Or what if we prayed, Lord, you have called so-and-so out of darkness. Strengthen them and empower them to remain steadfast and true to that calling to the very end. Because, folks, this is how the apostles prayed all the time for all the saints. In church, it is a good way to pray. We would do well to follow suit. But that's just part of the prayer, that God would make you worthy, that you would walk in excellence. The second request is that God would make you effective. That God would make you effective. Finishing out the verse, he says, And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. The second request is one for fulfillment. The word fulfillment here refers to completion or finishing something started. So he wants them to complete two big areas. He wants them to find completion and fulfillment in two big areas. Every resolve for good and every work of faith. This first big area speaks to their desire and determination for accomplishing good. Let's look for a moment at Psalm 37. Psalm 37. This is an extremely helpful and familiar text. Look at verses 3 and 4. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The key to understanding verse 4 is found in that word delight. But so often we skip straight to the end. We say, wait a minute, are you telling me that God's going to give me everything that I desire? All of the desires of my heart? The answer is yes. Of course he will. Why wouldn't he? So long as you are delighting yourself in him. And that's the key. Because when you delight yourself in him, guess what happens? His desires become your desires. Okay, there's a transference that occurs when you delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you what you pray for because your desires at that point are in alignment with his. So when we pray that God may fulfill every resolve for good, we are asking for God to accomplish every good thing that someone desires to do, so long as it is in alignment with God's goodness. That is to say, Lord, give them everything that they want. Complete their every desire, so long as it is good by your definition. Or, Lord, make them effective. Give them good desires. And as they put those good things to work, bring them to completion. And that rolls right into the second part of this second request. Every work of faith. Every work of faith. For several weeks now, we have seen that true faith is a faith that works. It was the great reformer, Martin Luther, who famously declared, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. I've always liked that. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Two weeks ago, we looked at a psalm for Father's Day, and we pulled over and parked for a while in Ephesians 2. There we saw that salvation is completely an act of God, that salvation comes through faith by grace, and that this is not done in and of ourselves. No one can boast about it because it is God's gift to us. And we say amen to that, right? Because if our salvation was dependent upon us, no one would be saved. No one would make it. So amen to that. But that is not the end of the passage or the Christian story. Ephesians 2.10 goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are not just saved from ourselves and from sin, but we are created in Christ for good works that God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Let's never forget that. 
Let's never forget that, folks. Good works will never save you. Good works don't save people. But saved people are good working people. And that's something to keep in mind. Good works won't save you, but saved people are good working people. That's how God designed it. That's how God did it. And that's how God does it. Now with that in mind, let's go back even further to a month ago when we introduced ourselves to the Thessalonians. Back at the very beginning of the first letter in verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw the Thessalonians had a working faith, unlike the dead faith as described in James 2. Their faith was alive. It was growing. It wasn't dormant. It wasn't hidden in the dark caves of their heart. But like all living things, it grew. And we saw in verse 3 that their faith continued to grow abundantly. And now here, at the end of verse 11, Paul is simply saying that he wants to see God fulfill every work of faith that they set out to accomplish by his power. The same apostle would go on to later write Ephesians 2. He knows that salvation is God's gift. He knows that God has already determined beforehand their every work of faith. So who better to appeal to for help than God himself? The whole point of this second request is for God to make them effective. That he would accomplish their good resolutions and complete every faithful work by his unlimited power. And again, I have to ask, when is the last time you prayed like this? When is the last time any of us have prayed like this? Have you ever prayed, Lord, fill that person's heart with good desires. Align their heartbeat with yours. And see that those things are accomplished in their life according to your goodness. Or have you ever prayed, God, would you make them effective and complete every work of faith that you have prepared beforehand for them to walk in? I can't remember the last time I heard anyone pray like this. And yeah, I'm including myself when I say that. Church, what is preventing us from praying these prayers? What's the holdup? That God would make you excellent. That he would make you worthy of his calling. That God would make you effective. That he would, by his power, fulfill every desire for good and every work of faith. Do you want to be excellent? Do you want to be effective? Do you want to see God work this way in the lives of others? Then this is what we should pray for. Can you imagine what it would look like if we all prayed prayers like this? Prayers for excellent and effective here in this church? I mean, we're family here, right? And like all families... We sometimes hurt each other. We sometimes speak out of turn. We sometimes, we sometimes raise our voices. We sometimes say things we regret. We sometimes slander each other. We sometimes whisper when we shouldn't. We're all guilty of those things, right? Every single one of us. But I'd like for you to think this morning. Think about that person in this church who has hurt you the most. Think about that person. What if you started praying that God would make them excellent and effective? And what if God actually started answering those prayers? How awesome would that be? Practically speaking, we would run out of reasons for resenting each other. And much like the Thessalonians, our faith would grow abundantly, and our love for one another would certainly increase. So I'd like to challenge you this morning, as I challenge myself, to start praying these prayers, because this is a good way to pray, church. This is an excellent way to pray. Well, so far, Paul's example has shown us when to pray and what to pray. Finally, he tells us why to pray. Verse 12 so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, a person's name was so much more than just a mere way to distinguish one person from the next. 
A person's name would become a symbol for who that person was. It spoke to their qualities and their character. For that reason, a man's name was intimately linked to their reputation and their honor, much like how we would refer to someone's good name or their bad name today. You see, what Paul is referring to here is more than just identification. Jesus' character, his reputation, his honor is the priority. The name in and of itself is only as powerful as the person it represents. Because let's be honest, there are lots of people in the pages of history who have been named Jesus. Many who have carried that name. But there is only one Lord. There is only one man who makes that name powerful beyond all imagination. And it is only powerful when it refers to him. So Paul's request is for Jesus' fame, his honor, his reputation, his character, his good name, to explode in glorification, both in him and him in you. Now, this glorification has already been referred to very recently. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. When we studied that verse, we noted that he is not glorified on that day by his saints, but in his saints. And that's such an important distinction because right now we endeavor to glorify him by our actions. But then he will be glorified in our persons, our character, what we are, not just what we do. That's an impossible concept for our sinful hearts to try and comprehend right now, isn't it? It's impossible. But just try to imagine what absolute perfection must be like. I mean, try. I know we can't, but we can try, right? To have no sin, not even a trace of it left in any of us. Not just in you, but in the person sitting next to you and the person sitting next to them. No sin, no pride, no lies, no arrogance, no slander, no deception, no insults, no conceit, no hate, no egotism, no self-centeredness, no laziness, no coveting, no stealing, no cheating, no jealousy, no anxiety, no fear, no sudden outbursts, no regrets, no sin. Well, right now, everyone in this room is intimately familiar with every single one of the things on that list. Imagine eternal life without any of that in you or anyone else that you know. Because Christ himself will be glorified in you. That is our hope. And that is what we are ultimately looking forward to here. But there is a present aspect to this glory as well. Because our present lives prepare us for that future. I mean, think about it. Whenever you became a Christian, God didn't take you right then and there to be glorified, did he? You became a new creature, a new creation in Christ, yes, but nothing physically changed. You didn't get superpowers. You didn't become faster, smarter, or better looking, even though many of us wish that we had. But instead, you found yourself here, trapped in the flesh, at war with yourself, the world, and Satan, like every other born-again believer, longing for home. Why? Why doesn't God just zap us home and turn us into spiritual Jedis? You might say, well, we have a job to do. We need to evangelize, to win the lost. And yes, that's true. That's very true. But do you want to know what God is most concerned about when it comes to you personally? You want to know what he's most concerned about? He wants to see you become like Christ, here and now, in this life, as much like Christ as you possibly can. Don't get me wrong. We must evangelize. We must. And to be used of God to help bring someone into the kingdom is the highest privilege But notice that evangelism, missions, witnessing, it hasn't come up once yet in this letter, has it? In fact, the primary preoccupation of the New Testament as a whole is your sanctification. Evangelism is essential. Missions are essential. Your witness is essential. But those activities will have little to no value for you if you are not growing in faith, love, and Christ-likeness. God will accomplish his purposes through you in spite of you if he has to. 
But as children of the light, we have been called to walk in the light. You probably have Romans 8.28 memorized. Most of us run to that verse for comfort all the time, right? It's one of the most comforting verses of the New Testament where Paul declares, and we know that those who love God, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But what does the next verse say in Romans 8.29? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Bible's word, not mine, by the way. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. To what? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Did you get that? You were predestined. And not only to be saved by Christ, but to become like him. To be conformed into his spitting image. Friends, the more like him that you become, the more deserving you become to bear his name. That is why your sanctification today is so important. That is why prayers of excellence and effectiveness are so important. The Christian life is not passive. You aren't born again to sit around idly and wait to die. Yes, there is work to do. So do it honorably. Walk worthy of your calling. Represent your king well by becoming more and more like him every day. And look, look at what it says here. Look at the means and the capital that God has provided for all of this worthiness, fulfillment, power, and glory. What do we have here at the end of verse 12? According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what drives all of this. It's God's grace. One commentator asked, how do we explain the glorification of the believer? How is it that enemies of God are made children of God? That people of disobedience become the servants of Christ? That those dead in sin are made alive in Jesus? That suffering turns to joy? That poverty inherits God's riches? Only by the grace of God. There is no other explanation. Well, he's right. And in case you missed it, this prayer is all about who? It's all about God. This is not a prayer for God's assistance, but God's action. It is an appeal for him to act by his power, for his glory, according to his grace. It's an appeal for him to act by his power, for his glory, according to his grace. I think too often we pray that God would empower our sovereignty instead of appealing to his. We cry out, oh God, help me. Give me the strength to pull these bootstraps up high enough while the God of creation waits for that final helpless prayer of humility, requesting him to act by his power for his glory, according to his grace. At least that's how the apostles prayed. And that's how the best prayers are presented to us in scripture. When do we pray? Always. What do we pray? That God would make you excellent and effective by his power. And why do we pray that God would be glorified, him and you, you and him, according to God's grace. Church, this is an excellent excellent way to pray. Well, before we take, a, take communion together, here's another general observation about Paul's prayers. Notice that there's nothing material about them. In fact, they are extremely immaterial. He doesn't pray for their physical needs to be met here. He doesn't even pray for their protection when he knows that they are being persecuted and afflicted at every corner. He prays for God to make them excellent and effective regardless of their circumstance because their sanctification and becoming more like Christ to the glory of God, that's what matters most to Paul. The obvious question today is, how much does our sanctification matter to us? How much does it matter? In the modern world, and especially our culture, hardship is a horrifying thing. We admire others who possess an inner spirit of triumph against suffering and agony, so long as our character can be developed by some other means, right? 
I mean, give me a book, send me to a seminar, but please don't give me trouble. And yet, how does the Bible portray the life as one of great difficulty? From the very beginning of the book, Abel was murdered, Noah was mocked, the prophets were massacred, because righteous men are always persecuted for loving God and for pursuing righteousness. Remember 2 Timothy 3.12? I'm sure you all have it memorized by now. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? They'll be marvelously blessed, right? No, it says they will be persecuted. We know that trouble is part of the package because God's word says so. But our culture says no. You deserve perpetual success, a lifetime of happiness and material peace of mind. If you have less than what the other person has, it is either unfair or your fault. That's how our culture looks at life, with self-centered entitlement. But what about the Thessalonians? What do we see here in their example? How does Paul react to them after the first letter, here in the second letter? Do we ever find them stunned by their real treatment? Were they depressed, bitter complainers? By our standards, they have every right to complain, don't they? But look, these people didn't just survive the fires of persecution. They endured with nobility, with a love that increased, and a faith that grew. Nobody loves trouble. Nobody enjoys trouble. But it's true. Rainy days are what makes us grow. Everyone wants to be the exception to the rule. But God has not promised an easy life until we are home. That's the fact of the matter. In the meantime, he does, however, use the worst of this life to prepare us for the glory to come. And I'm so thankful he does. I love what what one commentator had to say about this. He said, we can live above our circumstances. Every wonderful or crummy thing that happens to us is not excluded from the creative finger of God. Nothing in our experience is wasted. He is committed to our transformation and will use everything at his disposal to shape our character, faith, obedience, and love. So friends, let's not. Let's not spend too much of our time praying material prayers for ourselves. Let's pray for each other's sanctification. Let's make it a priority. Let's put that front and center to start praying for each other. And to start praying these things for ourselves, yes, but think about the other guy. Think about your brothers and sisters here at First Baptist Church of Arlington. Let's take this tip from the apostles, and let's make time to continually pray this way for this reason. Okay? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. Lord, you are so good. You are so kind and gracious to us. And Lord, we know that you are sovereign over everything, that you control everything, that nothing surprises you. That every rainy day, that every fiery trial that anyone in this room may ever have to face, that none of those things are surprises for you. And that your grace is sufficient for us. That it is according to your grace that you have granted to us everything that we need to stand up, to bear, for our faith to be tested and to be proven strong. Lord, I pray that each and every person here, regardless of what we're going through, Lord, I know that in any room this size, there is a world of hurt. There is a ton of pain. And Lord, I just pray that we would be here for each other, that we would comfort each other. And I pray that we would pray for each other. Much like how Paul and the other apostles would pray for other churches, I pray that we would do that for each other. That we would pray for sanctification, for excellence. That we would walk worthy. That as a church body, that we would would consider the call, the wonderful call that you have brought us out of darkness into your wonderful light. That we would see that for the glorious beacon that it is, that it is such a high calling, that you have saved us not to just sit around idly by, for us to rest on our laurels of faith and wait for the grave so that we can then one day be perfected, but that you would perfect us even now, that you would work us 
towards that goal, that we would produce much fruit in keeping with repentance in every work of faith that you have prepared beforehand for us to do, that it would be done, that it would be fulfilled, that it would be accomplished in a complete and final sense. Lord, you are so good. And again, you are, you are the one who does all of these things. You do it by your power. We are so powerless on our own. And so, Lord, we rely on you. We trust on you. And we, we thank you again for these promises that we find in your I pray that as we come to the communion table, just that we, would, uh, that we would once again focus our eyes on you and the tremendous sacrifice that you made for us by becoming sin for us so that we could become your righteousness. Lord, we long for the day when we will be glorified and you will be glorified in us, not just by us. And to that end, we pray. We give you all the praise and all of the glory in your name. Amen.